Hello, friends. A word of caution about today's episode. Our conversation briefly touches upon the topic of suicide. If this is a sensitive subject for you, please feel free to skip it and we'll catch you next week. If you or someone you know needs help, you can text or call 988 for the crisis hotline. A link also appears in the show notes. You are now in session with the Comic Book Couples Counseling Podcast. I'm Lisa Gullickson. I'm Brad Gullickson. And each month we evaluate a different iconic romance within the four-color realm. In this episode, we can take the turtle out of the sewer, but we can't take the sewer out of the turtle. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, uh, all right. We're talking the posthumous sibling (laughs) dynamics in The Last Ronin from IDW. And we're applying Dr. Don Hubner's The Sibling Survival Guide, Surefire Ways to Solve Conflicts, Reduce Rivalry, and Have More Fun with Your Brother's and sisters to their relationship woes. And we also just got back from the Alamo Draft House in Winchester, Virginia. We finally had our Howard the Duck screening the first in our new comic book couples counseling series on comic book movies at the Alamo. And wow, what a turnout. We had the most fun time. We had 43 people show up yep. to party. Yep. And we gave everyone buttons. Yeah, get down, America, the Howard the Duck presidential buttons from 1976. And uh, congratulations to our trivia winners. We gave out four prizes. Yeah, including the Chip Zdarsky omnibus, Joe Quinones omnibus and uh the what if action figure a packet of original howard the duck movie trading cards from tops so complete cool. with a stale stick <laughs> of gum eric from four color fantasies was there despite very publicly hating howard the duck the <laughs> he movie. was not the only one who came in with that opinion and i would say they also left with that opinion the movie is wild it is but it has a soft spot in my heart a downy soft spot <laughs> but eric sold some comments He brought a big fat stack straight from Four Color Fantasies of all Howard, all Duck comics all of the time. And um, it was just a fun atmosphere. And we had a couple patrons show up for the show. Shout out to Kevin Ford and Chris Chaka. Chris brought his teens with him. And, you know, I remember Howard the Duck having some inappropriate stuff in it. The duck boobs Mm -hmm. are very memorable. But that movie is so horny. Yeah. And you don't realize how horny Howard the Duck is until you're sitting next to a couple of teenagers giggling through that horniness. I think that they legitimately enjoyed the movie. We talked to them afterwards. Yeah, they definitely did. Though um, I mentioned how vulnerable it is to like share movies from our time to the <laughs> younger generation. Uh-huh. And um, one of the teens said, well, it was no parasite. Not wrong. <laughs> Howard the Duck is not parasite. But it is a good time at the movies. And I still come away from that film appreciating more about it than loathing it. You know, yeah. not every joke lands. I think the moment Dr. Jennings shows up in the back half of the film, it kind of takes a nosedive as well. I wish the film was really more about just Howard and Beverly, uh, uh, you know, having an, a relationship, a romance. Yeah. Uh, 
while he learns about Earth as an outsider. And tries to get home, because I think that's important. But while we had a few people who agreed with us that it's like an underappreciated comic book gem, I think the majority of the crowd, as much fun as they had with it, still came away going like, mm, that's not a great film. <laughs> and it didn't help that we had Chip Zdarsky doing a video intro for the film and just savagely <laughs> raking it over the coals. He was so brutal. It was priceless. It, it was hilarious. And it was great to see Chip on the big screen and hear the crowd really respond to his comedy, mm -hmm. his dry sense of humor. And you can watch that video on our Instagram feed, our Facebook page and Twitter handle. Like I, I would highly encourage, encourage it because it is a true treat. It does raise the bar of like, who are we going to get to do the introductions for our future films? Can we top Chip Zdarsky? Yeah, our next film is going to be March 12th at the Alamo Drafthouse in Winchester, Virginia. And it's going to be Lone Wolf and Cub, mm -hmm. Sword of Vengeance. Uh, the omnibuses are now being republished by Dark Horse Comics. I'm very excited about that. I can't wait to see this on a big screen as possible. But yeah, uh, we need to find somebody who can bring as much energy to that introduction as Chip did. And I think that'll be difficult, but yeah. possible. Yeah, hopefully we'll find someone who actually likes the film. Yeah, so if you are a creator yeah. who loves Lone Wolf and Cub's Sword of Vengeance and you're listening now, I need you to email us, cbccpodcast at gmail.com, reach out to us on Twitter, at cbccpodcast, and let us know. We will put you up on the big screen so you can champion this really rad manga series and a really great cinematic series as well, Criterion Collection. Or you can just nag us like Zdarsky did. We're, we're not picky. I like it. I like <laughs> to too. be nagged. Me too. Okay, that's not Please true. Please don't nag us. <laughs> don't nag us. Uh, but Lisa and I are listening to that podcast, If Books Could Kill. Yeah. And they recently did an episode on The Game, that mm -hmm. pickup artist book, which is atrocious and all about nagging. But also the way that that podcast takes down that book is a delight. It's hilarious. And I would recommend it. I, uh, I yeah. Too, too. It, Michael Hobbs podcasts are great. I've kind of wondered in the past if we should apply the game to a comic book couple at some point. Right. But having now listened to that podcast, I'm like, no, that book is truly evil. And we I don't want to platform it. I don't want to have to read it, frankly. Yeah. yeah. Although we have platformed a couple books that they've taken down all already. They did an episode on Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, great. which we took down when we applied it to Marco and Alana from Saga. And he made a lot of the same points that I did, which made me feel really yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the long and short of it is don't neg us. Negging's not cool. No, thank you. Uh, but yeah, so Alamo Drafthouse, March 12th, Lone Wolf and Cub. Come on out. See us host. We'll have more prizes. We'll have more trivia. We'll have more giveaways. We're so excited about this series. We're two films in now. And we're scheduling the next batch of movies. It's kind of challenging because, you know, uh, movie studios want a little bit more money than they used to. Yeah, it feels like a little bit of a shell game. Yeah. Like yeah. trying to figure out which films we can actually get at the theater. But we might have a film right after Lone Wolf and Cub that I honestly can't believe it's a possibility. Right. Uh, so I'm not going to say what it is. Please don't, because that'll, that'll jinx it. But it's a DC film. Okay. And maybe on the same level of Howard the Duck. <laughs> so let the guessing game begin. But I've got my fingers crossed, and I need all listeners to cross your fingers for that as well. But yeah, so we're super excited about what we're doing with the Alamo Drafthouse. And if you want to know more about our thoughts in Howard the Duck, we did a whole Patreon episode on that film defending it. Yeah. We re-fell in love with Howard while 
while doing that episode. Uh, link in the show notes. Check out that episode. Though I would say just watching it at home on the couch with your lover is different than watching it in a theater. With some teenagers next to you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Howard has a rubber in his wallet that's unwrapped. Yeah. Why? Gross. Yeah, we shouldn't be showing the next generation that. No, no, we wrap our rubbers. Yes, we do. Well, I mean, he's from another planet. Duck World is different. Watching Howard the Duck, though, and reading some of the comics leading up to that screening had me aching to cover Howard and Beverly on the podcast. Me because too. We are Team Howard and Beverly. Yes, we are. Yeah, like, it's not that gross, guys, okay? It's basically like, you know, Spock and uh, T'Pring making out. No, it's not, because Spock and T'Pring are both Vulcan. Well, he's half Vulcan, right? No. Okay, oh, well, like, Worf is the product of Klingons and humans That's doing right. it. Spock is the product of Klingons and, not Klingons, of Vulcans <laughs> and humans doing it. If we find that not gross, I think it's okay to watch Beverly and Howard kiss on the bill. Birds do it with bees, bees do it with birds. That's, that's the saying. Yes. I know all of the sayings. Yeah, that's what I learned in school. I learned in school. So I think <laughs> we should definitely cover Beverly and Howard at some point on the podcast. I'm into it. But we got to wrap up our sibling series with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Dr. Hubner. I am a little sad to say goodbye mm. to the turtles, but I don't think it's going to be a goodbye either. I feel like we have to return to them at some point because there's so many comics and so many different eras to cover. What what month of the year is Father's Day? Because I feel like oh, is uh, Father's Day bad um, son, bad daughter right here. Is it like April or something? I feel like it's June. <laughs> June, okay. But like if we did a like a Splinter Turtles Father's oh, Day episode, maybe. I love maybe. that idea. I love that. We shouldn't idea. program on the on the oh, feed, but yeah, and there's a perfect comic for that. Yeah, a recent Turtles comic from a great creator where that would really fit well. Let's let's stop and take a note. We're putting a pin in that. Yeah, definitely, definitely. But we are finishing our current series on the Ninja Turtles with The Last Ronin from IDW Comics. We've wanted to dive deep into this series for several years now. One of our earliest Patreon episodes was a breakdown of the first issue way back in October of 2020. The reason we were excited about it back then is the same reason we are excited about it today. The idea of The Last Turtles Turtles story is so tantalizing. These kinds of final stories or future stories are always compelling, right? The popularity of them probably dates back to The Dark Knight Returns. And that Frank Miller comic certainly plays a big influence on The Last Ronin, as all Frank Miller comics probably influence the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. But that final Batman book spawned stories like Old Man Logan, all those Marvel The End titles, my personal favorite being The Punisher The End from Garth Ennis and Richard Corbin. Uh, Lisa, do you like this type of subgenre, like where we jump into the far future to see where our favorite characters might end up? Yeah, of course. I'm a huge believer in the multiverse. I want to see every single iteration possibility of the end of every story. I want them all. Um, recent fave, Catwoman Lonely City. Oh, yeah. Also, 
I love that War of the World Usagi story that we covered. Yes, Senso. Yes, yes. And we're getting a sequel or, a, no, we're getting a prequel to it this year called Where When that actually pairs with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. How exciting. Most anticipated comic of the year. Also, I think we covered one of these already in our Ninja Turtles series with our Cyber Samurai, our last Turtles episode. We did, we did. And that... Arc is going to come up, I think, a lot in our conversation today. So yes, it will. if you haven't listened to that episode, please go back and give that a perusal. Go back and listen to all our Ninja Turtles episodes. What are you doing jumping in at the last <laughs> one? Links in the show notes, friends. Do whatever you want. The la- <laughs> We don't want no, to boss you around. No, I, there are rules here. We are playing good cop, bad cop the with last, our previous episodes. The last Ronin apparently is an idea that the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle creators, Peter Laird and Kevin Eastman, came up with in 1987. It came to them as they were wrapping up the 11th issue of the original Mirage Studios series. Eastman told Inverse.com, who did a really rad oral history of The Last Ronin on their site, Yes, link in the show notes to that article as well. They were looking ahead with their characters. Where are these turtles going to end up? And they imagined them 30 years from that point, imagining their world 30 years from that point too. And that's where the earliest post-apocalyptic ideas began to percolate, again, heavily influenced by what they'd recently read in The Dark Knight Returns, which was published in 1986. This was also during that point where the turtles as a brand started to explode the cartoon the toys the movies so Laird and Eastman decided it wasn't actually a good moment for them to tell the final story and into their funky story ideas folder it went I want access to that Uh, and they do have a couple photographs on the site on inverse.com of those early notes oh cool so if you go to the link in the show notes to the inverse article you can see them and they're worth reading Mm. But cut to many decades later, the IDW series, the current Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles run, was approaching its 100th issue. Again, the team had the question of, where do they go next? And that's when Eastman dipped into his Funky Story Ideas folder and pulled out the notes that would eventually transform into The Last Ronin. So I just want to take a moment and acknowledge where the Turtles are as a brand or as a franchise today. Back in the year 2000, Kevin Eastman sold his share in the Turtles to Peter Laird, who became the sole owner. Why? In some ways, he did it because he'd purchased Heavy Metal Magazine back in 1990, and it was taking more and more attention away from the Turtles. And also, he and Laird were starting to have more and more creative differences. Nine years later, Peter Laird sold the Turtles to Viacom, a.k.a. Nickelodeon, and I'm sure he made a mint. But now the creators were out of the Turtles. If you want a little insight into how that made... Peter Laird feel, I would recommend heading over to the Cartoonist Kayfabe YouTube page. They recently did a shoot interview with Peter Laird and listening to him there, gosh, I mean, there's a lot of melancholy, which is a word he uses a couple times during the interview. That breaks my heart. At one point, he even reflects on what the Turtles would have been without the toys and the movies and the money that came with it. He no longer really draws at all, not just turtles, but he just doesn't draw anymore. And he even talks about how he's lost a love for the medium of comics. Oh my goodness. It is as, you know, like as fans of the Ninja Turtles, 
listening to that cartoonist kayfabe interview is challenging, but it's also beautifully honest. And I just so respect where Peter Laird is coming from and I understand where he's coming from. But he also talks about when he sold the rights to Viacom, he had a clause in there where he could just stop what he's doing and do a Ninja Turtle comic at any time. Okay, so that's awesome. So maybe that'll happen. He doesn't seem too confident on that fact, but again, I'm crossing my fingers, and I think all our listeners need to cross their fingers. We need to see Peter Laird come back to the Ninja Turtles. It would be really, really just special. Just heal that relationship with his characters. Yeah, I, yeah, and and you know, that kind of starts here with the last Ronin, because Kevin Eastman, who eventually came back to the Turtles as kind of a work-for-hire creator, you know, no longer an owner of the Turtles, but IDW wanted his influence on the book, so they brought him on, and he's written scripts with Tom Waltz, he's done art, he's done covers, and when it was time to do The Last Ronin, he reached out to Peter Laird to see if he wanted to be involved. And he certainly wanted to get the okay from Peter Laird. Of course, Peter said, yes, you have my okay, you have my blessing. They have healed those wounds. Like on the 30th, or maybe it was the 35th anniversary, they did get together and oh, they nice. patched up, you know, some of those sour feelings. Um, but Peter Laird said, you have my blessing. I'm not going to contribute to this story, but I'm excited to read it someday. Although Kevin Eastman doesn't think Peter Laird's read it yet. And I would also guess that Peter Laird hasn't read The Last Ronin yet. IDW got the rights to the Turtles to start publishing comics back in 2011. And Eastman's been with it pretty much since then. I only just started reading the IDW comics. There's a huge fan base for them. But I picked up the books once Sophie Campbell started doing the writing. And she's done some art for the book as well. I think that those comics really harken back to the spirit of the Archie era. Building family, creating a community around the Turtles. I highly recommend them. And they feel very different than what we get here in The Last Ronin. Mm. And uh, I, I, I feel like when I'm reading The Last Ronin, because it is this post-apocalyptic story, this solitary story about the last surviving Ninja Turtle, you, as a Ninja Turtle fan, just feel the loss of that community. Mm. And uh, I, I, I don't want to like venture too far into that conversation because I know, Lisa, you have a lot of thoughts on it. And we'll save that to the main discussion point of this show. But right now we need to look at our love expert, Dr. Hubner, helping us out with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and their sibling relationships. And I think she has her work cut out for her with the last Ronin now that Three of the siblings are dead. Yeah. So let's put the ghosts of Raphael, Leonardo, and Donatello in the waiting room with their living brother, Michelangelo. I think he brought them. We're he brought them, and they're <laughs> sitting there. Our couch is ready for them, but before we can bring them into session, let's talk about our love expert. Yes, our love expert for these four cold-blooded bros is Dr. Don Hubner from her book, The Sibling Survival Guide, Surefire Ways to Solve Conflicts, Reduce Rivalry, and Have More Fun with Your Brothers and Sisters, illustrated by Kara McHale, whom I feel like we haven't given enough, considering that we are a comic book podcast, we have not been giving her her due, but we are also an audio format, so it's hard to talk about the art in this self-help book. It's super cute and it's emotive. Adorable. I'm for it. And yeah, Brad, you took the words 
right out of my notes. Oh, no. Dr. H does have her work cut out for her applying the sibling survival <laughs> guide to the last Ronin. Dr. Hubner's book is for children and is very much about coping with your siblings while you're all living under one roof. And also just living. Yeah, that's right. And the last Ronin is about a sibling who's processing the loss of his other siblings. And if we're using the sibling survival guide to literally help the Ninja Turtles survive, we are failing miserably. <laughs> and it's just going to go from bad to worse, frankly. There is a question, Lisa, and again, we don't have to get into it now, but are these figments... We are going to get into it okay. now. Are you reading along with no, me? No, I'm not. I'm not. So <laughs> are these figments of Mikey's imagination, delusion, whatever, or are these the actual spirits of Donnie, Leo, and Raph? I was going to ask you the exact same question, but like all questions I ever ask, I have my own thoughts on the subject that I want to share, so thank you very much. You're um, welcome. I, for me, I think it's most effective for them to be figments, especially the way that the book climaxes towards Mikey saying, shut up, like mm -hmm. stop talking mm -hmm. to me mm -hmm. and allow me to do my thing. I, I really think that it is him trying to distance himself from the idea of... Yeah, I mean, he's he's recovering from trauma. Mm -hmm. And I, my interpretation of that is the same as yours. Right. I feel like if they were actually ghosts, there would be more revelatory information. And they would all behave a, differently than they are behaving in this book. Like... I don't necessarily see the true blue personalities of those turtles in these spirits in The Last Ronin. Now, I do know that supernatural elements exist within the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles world, and I'm open to the possibility of the turtles coming back and visiting Mikey after their death. But my reading on it is that this is just not the case in The Last Ronin. And I think what's most effective for our conversation on comic book couples counseling is that they are figments. Okay. And that they are something that he has to overcome and, and set aside. Yeah, I was wondering if you were going to have the same thought as I have regarding this subject. Yeah. Based on the conversation we recently had with Nicole Maines and Leah Williams yeah. about the spectrum of science and supernatural in the DC universe and how we're, you know, we're sliding up and down it right now in our own lives. And I feel like I want them to be ghosts in the last road and I want to lean supernatural. But here. they just don't function But that it doesn't way. work that way in the book, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah okay, no. so we're on the same page. Yeah, but I think we can still have a really effective discussion about the sibling dynamics oh, yeah. and Mikey's relationship with his brothers because we know from previous sessions that a relationship continues even after one or more members of that relationship have passed away because when we grieve a person, a monument is created in our hearts and we have to learn how to live in context to that monument, which is something that we talked about in session 73 about John Jones and Mariah in Martian Manhunter. Yeah, the Steve Orlando miniseries. Link in the show notes. Also, I was, I've was i been, of course, thinking a lot about Don Hubner and our previous sessions using her. And one of our main takeaways has been this like 
Are we wearing our sibling stink glasses mm. or our no big deal frames? And when someone has passed away, all we have to look back is our perspective glasses. Is, is Mikey choosing to look back at his relationship with his brothers in a contentious way? Or in, or from a place of gratitude. Mm, yeah, love it, love it, love it. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is gonna be a good one. Another interesting thing about like the perspective glasses is like Mikey also gets to decide how he feels his siblings saw him, which I think is a huge can of worms for Mikey. We know that he has a little bit of a little brother inferiority thing going on, where he's the guy who takes the lowest orders. Mm. You know what's interesting in that Inverse.com article is Eastman referring to Michelangelo as the firstborn, not literally, but because when Peter Laird and him were creating the concept initially in those early sketches, the turtle had nunchucks. Oh. The first turtle had nunchucks. And so therefore the first turtle was Michelangelo. And for him, he always had to be the last turtle. The last Ronin. Oh, oh, yeah, like poetically. Yeah. I think it's interesting to have Mikey as the last Ronin because he is, one, the most deferential to his other brothers, and so a lot of his decisions are made through that filter. And then also he's supposed to be like the lighthearted, fun guy. Yeah, he's the party dude. Yeah. So to make him the sole surviving member of the Ninja Turtles is narratively super interesting. Whereas if they had done Raphael, like yeah. the lone gunman, that doesn't work. That's not as it's, interesting. It, it would be a dream come true for him. He's like, finally, <laughs> I get to ways, make my own decisions. Certainly a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I really appreciate Eastman and company going the Mikey route. Mm. For this last session, there are a few more of Dr. H's tools I'd like to add to Mikey's tool belt. These come from chapter seven, dealing with feelings. In this chapter, Dr. Hubner encourages us to get in touch with our feelings, particularly how they make us feel in our bodies. When we get nervous, we might feel it in our chest or our stomach. When we're embarrassed, we might feel it as heat in our faces. Sometimes these physical manifestations are small and manageable, but often with our siblings, those manifestations can be big and debilitating. So I'd like to take an exercise right out of the Sibling Survival Guide, and I'd like you to be in the mindset of Mikey and be thinking about, of Mikey in The Last Ronin specifically, and think about how he feels when he thinks about his siblings and his relationship with his siblings. So this is a little project for me now. Yeah, yeah, okay. a little role play. Let's do it. And so I'm gonna list a bunch of feelings right out of the book, and I want you to say if it's an emotion that Mikey feels big, Mikey feels small, or not at all. Okay, all right, I got my ears on. Let's do this. Play along at home, listener. Happy. Uh, in the context of Last Rodin? Yeah. So not like party dude. Cause like, you know, Archie era Ninja Turtle Mikey would be a big, I would say big, happy big. But Last Ronin, not at all? Maybe. Okay, I'm going not at all. Angry. Big. Excited? Uh, small. Jealous? Not at all. Surprised? Uh, gosh, this is kind of challenging. Um, surprise, small. Resentful. Big. Proud. 
Uh, small. Ashamed. Big. Safe. Small. I would say not at all. Not at all. Not at all safe. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Okay. Frustrated. Uh, big. Interested. Small. Sad. Big. Disappointed. Big. Curious. I would... Uh, I mean, when Fugitoid's back, <laughs> yeah. like, I'm pretty curious about Fugitoid <laughs> being here. I'm going to say small. Okay. Yeah, small. Scared. I would say big. Thankful. Um, hmm. At, I, I would say at one point, he's big thankful, but for the majority of the last Ronin, he's small thankful. Worried. Big. Relaxed. <laughs> Not at all. Disgusted. Uh, big. Calm. Not at all. Lonely. Big. Loving. Big. Weak. Small. Grateful. Again, maybe not the whole book. Uh, I'll just say small. Eager. Uh, hmm, small. Annoyed. Uh, big. Yeah, I, I agree with you on most of these. The only one that I disagree with is I think he is jealous. I think he's jealous of his siblings. The mm. fact that their fight is over. Mm. Yeah, that's and interesting. And he has to continue. Yeah. And he doesn't want to do it anymore. I like that interpretation. Honestly, this was way more challenging than I thought. And as I was saying my answers, I was very unsure of my answers and I withhold the right to reevaluate those <laughs> answers in the future. Yeah, maybe like at the end of the episode or maybe uh, maybe like a... Make no promises, Lisa, but yeah. I definitely want... I, I'm going to need more time with that list, but I love the list. I love the idea of the exercise too. And it is interesting to just reflect on Michelangelo and the last Ronin in this way. And I think that it's important for him to know what his feelings are. Because Dr. H says that feelings are signal flares. It's our body's way of telling us to pay attention. I think this is also a really good tool just to apply to other characters yeah. in the entertainment that you're consuming. Also, this would be good to apply to yourself at different points in your life. And not just like big points, like let's try it this week, let's try it next week, let's try it the week after. Yeah, yeah. It's important to listen to our feeling signals before the problem gets unmanageable because when we're having big feelings, we may act a certain way despite knowing better. Mm. So this next exercise is just an exercise of like, listen to the list and say, what is a good choice to make in relationship to your sibling and what's a bad choice? All right, and I'm doing this as if I'm Michelangelo? Michelangelo. Okay. So what is a helpful way of talking about your feelings and what is a not helpful way? Okay, multiple choice. Complaining. Uh, not helpful. Blaming. Not helpful. Oh, this U is easy. Using a regular voice. Like a regular voice. Use of a regular voice? Yeah, as opposed to the next one, which is yelling. Oh, okay. <laughs> helpful, yelling, not helpful. Calling names? Not helpful. Naming your feelings? Uh, helpful. Exaggerating? Uh, not helpful. Saying what you need? Helpful. It's an easy test. Uh, it's we much, all yeah. know better, but when our feelings get big... you It's nice to have something like this to reset your perspective. Yeah, so what Dr. Humner says is that when we um, are having these big feelings that, that might cause us to make irrational, not helpful decisions, our first course of action 
is to make the big feelings smaller. Mm, mm, mm. And okay. so she gives us a few strategies to help deflate these oversized emotions. Into it. So number one is to talk to yourself in positive ways. I feel like positive self-talk can be an ongoing conversation in The Last Ronin because Mikey does a lot of self-talk, both as himself and as his brother's. Dr. Huebner says it's good to have a grab bag of positive self-talk phrases to use when you're feeling a big feeling like, I'm okay, I can handle this, I can stay calm, cowabunga dudes. <laughs> yeah. I think Mikey could also benefit from just imagining his brother's giving positive self-talk to him. Rather than what he gets for most of the last Ronin. Right, yeah. which is poking and prodding and, and commenting. Yeah. Yeah. So number two is breathing. Just slowing your breath down. You can do it on a count, like in for four. Out for four. My dad was a big believer in this, and I try to practice it to this day. But sometimes it is hard, and sometimes it's annoying. Um, you can also <laughs> think, like, the, the word slow breath, right? Yeah. And, and that will help slow your breathing down. But if, number three, you are in no mood to slow your breathing down, then distract yourself with some exercise. It doesn't matter how long it is or, or what the activity is, as long as you get your muscles working and your heart beating. Yeah, yeah. We're firm believers in, like, let's go take a walk. Yeah, yeah, big time. So that's it. Before we start our session with The Last Ronin, let's just do a quick inventory of the strategies we've gotten from Sibling Survival Guide. One is trade your sibling stink glasses for your no big deal frames. Two is reward the good stuff, ignore the bad stuff. Three is don't take the bait, which I think is going to be a big one with very the last one and very challenging for Mikey. And four is bring your big emotions down to size. I like these tools. I think they will work really well for the last Ronin. But before we can get into our conversation, Lisa, we got to do some words of affirmation. No, no, no. I'm not in the best voice today. You're doing lovely. For our first time listeners, the words of affirmation are our way to give back to our new and upgrading Patreon subscribers. We curate and use these ourselves, and we're more than happy to pass them on to you. These affirmations were collected straight from Splinter's mouth from the 1987 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoon series. Of course, we don't expect every listener to financially support us on Patreon. That is A-OK -okay if you don't feel like doing so. There are many other ways to support the podcast. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts as an example. Oh, we would love that. We would love that. It's been a while. We haven't gotten a review all 2023. Isn't that sad? Is that really true? It is true. Oh, no. Sad. Yeah. But I know someone listening right now will remedy that right quick. Ooh, I'm already appreciating it, and it feels great. And these affirmations, while dedicated to these specific Patreon members, they can still be applied to anyone. Yeah, if something resonates with you, just take it. That's what we do. We just go out into the world and we find words of affirmation everywhere. So with that in mind, let's get centered, let's get receptive, and let's deliver some words of affirmation. Mm, let's start with a deep breath. <sighs> <sighs> Drew Edwards. You know that if you look for happiness outside of yourself, you'll never find it. Happiness exists only within you. 
Spivo. Some say that the path from inner turmoil begins with a friendly ear. Your ear is open so others can care to use it. Mark Mares. You understand that if you think too much about what is coming, you will lose sight of what is. You must be fully in the moment so you can fight without thinking. Yeah. That's nice. Thank I, you, Master Splinter. I really enjoyed that. He is the master of the two-part words of affirmation. Each one was two sentences, like a one-two punch, in a good way. For the most part, in the last Ronin, Master Splinter exists in the past or exists in memory, but his influence stretches across time and reality, I guess, or the living space, the waking world. But I also feel the last Ronin meditates on Splinter's fatal flaw. And Mm. I think that we have one flashback sequence where he really just is wrongheaded and makes a huge mistake. And I do wonder if all listeners will go with us regarding what we perceive to be Splinter's fatal flaw. But uh, before we really dig into that, let's just set up the comic book a little bit. Uh, This week, yes, we're reading The Last Ronin issues one through five, produced by IDW Publishing from October 2020 to April 2022. Thanks, pandemic. (laughs) Uh, Took a long time to get these issues out into the world, but I'm glad that they were able to stay with a consistent vision rather than rotating out a bunch of artists or actually like, you know, they incorporate several artists, but in a clever way using those flashbacks. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's based on a story by Peter Laird, Kevin Eastman, and Tom Waltz with scripts written by Kevin Eastman and Tom Waltz. The comic was illustrated by Esau Escorza, Isaac Escorza, Ben Bishop on those flashbacks, and Kevin Eastman on those flashbacks. The layouts were done by Kevin Eastman, colors by Luis Antonio Delgado, with color assists by Samuel Plata and Rhonda Pattison, and the letters and design were done by Sean Lee. Here's the basic plot synopsis taken straight from Goodreads. In a future battle-ravaged New York City, a lone surviving turtle embarks on a seemingly hopeless mission seeking justice for the family he lost. Get ready for the final story of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, TMNT co-creators Kevin Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird reunite for the first time in years to bring you the turtle story three decades in the making. Who is the last Ronin? What terrible events destroyed his family and left New York a crumbling post-apocalyptic nightmare? All will be revealed in this climactic turtle tale that sees longtime friends becoming enemies and new allies emerging in the most unexpected places. Can the surviving turtle triumph? Lisa, first thoughts on that plot synopsis, given what you know about the whole totality of The Last Ronin story. I'm just remembering the first time I read that oversized first issue and reading through it and trying to discern who is The Last Ronin. And when you get to that final page and April is like, hi, Michelangelo, or whatever, you're just like, yeah! Yeah, I remember that moment, but more... 
significantly. I remember the buildup to the mm-hmm. last yes, Ronin because yes. like the back of this book, it is really promoting the mystery of who the last Ronin is. And Kevin Eastman spoke about how they considered stretching the mystery throughout the entire series. And I'm just so glad that they did not do that because the question of who the last Ronin is, is not as interesting as what the last Ronin Michelangelo is doing without his brothers. I think you need to know that it's Michelangelo to fully appreciate the struggle that he is going through. And you also couldn't bring in other characters. Like, you couldn't bring in April, because April would know exactly which turtle she's talking to. Right, so if they wanted to include April, which they definitely did, they would have to do some narrative contortionist yeah. tricks to hide that information from us, and that would feel like cheating and would be frustrating to read. Yeah, absolutely. Second second point about this Goodreads little plot synopsis, who is the longtime friend who becomes an enemy? Yeah, I was thinking about that too. And did ma- the, the person just presume like that's got to happen one time? I don't know. And like, not maybe, read the comic? maybe we'll figure that out as we work our way back through the plot of the last Ronin. But nobody jumps out to me, right? Yeah, no. Yeah, uh, yeah. So like Fugitoid, no Fugitoids like on their side. Yeah. I don't. I don't know. I don't know. Like, I, the, the, yeah. Good question, Lisa. Let's see if we can answer it during this discussion. The other element in that plot description is how hard they try to sell the idea that Peter Laird has reunited with Mm. Kevin Eastman to tell this story. And that's not necessarily true. That's a touch of exaggeration. Yeah, exaggeration, hyperbole. We'll allow that. Mm -hmm. So now let's go ahead and invite Michelangelo out of the waiting room Mm -hmm. into session. He can bring his spirit brothers with him. Absolutely. Please leave all weaponry in the umbrella stand. Yeah, that would be very problematic for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't need to be, like, we're certainly not armed, except for we're armed with knowledge and the tools from Dr. H. And we have the text before us, so let's open up to the first page of The Last Ronin. The first caption we read is the word now, placing us in the future, as Kevin Eastman has said, about 30 years from the current continuity. So they don't give an exact year in this story, but let's say Michelangelo was 15 years old Mm -hmm. during the main continuity of the IDW series, and if we're 30 years from that, he's 45, he's older than the two of us. He's thoroughly middle-aged for a human and a turtle. Yes. So let's just go ahead and then age the other characters. So, okay. So, like, if April is, like, 22, early 20s. She was, yes. So then she would be In her 52. 50s. Yeah. Which means, like, how old is Casey Jones, her oh, daughter? Uh, She's probably a teenager, yeah, right? So, so let's say she's 15. I think they say that she's 16. She's 16. Okay, yeah, yeah. So that means that April had Casey... In her late 30s. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you know, that's still doable. It's not a geriatric pregnancy. Um, well, I think it technically is a geriatric pregnancy, but not outside the realm of reality. My mom had John when she was 39, and he is clearly the best of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she was uh, saving agreed. the best eggs for last. But April was pregnant with Casey and didn't know it during the explosion that killed Leonardo and Casey Jones Sr. Right. So that means the explosion happened about 17 years ago. Right. It was actually kind of confusing 
reading this directly after the Archie run <laughs> because the Archie run happens like literally like a hundred years in the future. Yeah, it's way in the future. But there are a lot of thematic elements that are the same. For example, there's been this global environmental collapse. The water is completely polluted and unpalatable. And has risen up above some of the skyscrapers. That's right. And then also there are synthoid robots from cadavers running around. And at one point, one of the brothers goes like, what kind of sick freak does that to someone? And in I'm like- In the last Ronin. In the last Ronin. And I'm like, Verminator X, obviously, <laughs> yeah. and Craniac. Oh man, I would have flipped my lid if Craniac had shown up in this last Ronin story. It's weird having these two kind of parallel universes of turtles share so much in common. Yeah, but also be radically different in tone. And obviously that tone is going to be different in The Last Ronin because three of the four brothers are dead. Right. And the first page of The Last Ronin, I still want to stay on this first page, that second panel where we get a close-up of The Last Ronin, of Michelangelo, from off-camera we get a bubble saying, cold, huh? And we realize very quickly that the people who are talking to this last Ronin are the other turtles. And I love that the first word we hear out of their mouth is cold because it sets up the tone of this story. And you feel so much loss and grief just in these few panels. And it establishes the last Ronin as a bit of a bummer, unlike Cyber Samurai Ninja Turtles of the Archie era, even though it's a post-apocalyptic world, commenting very much on the eco-crisis facing the globe way back in the 90s, mm -hmm. uh, that comic was a light-hearted, fun adventure comic. So even in the apocalypse, it was a good time in a bad time. We also see that the last Ronin is not just like emotionally burdened with the loss of his brothers, but he's like physically burdened mm. yes. because he is carrying all of the weapons of his brothers on his back. So we see the bow staff, we see the katana, the scythes are on the side, his nunchucks are somewhere, obviously. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a great look. I love the costume and the black headband, right? Yeah. So the orange headband is gone. You, they could have gone with a red headband, but no, the black headband, Michelangelo is in mourning for his brothers. But but like to me, all of those signs that differentiate, that we're su such in the habit of looking for to go like, which turtle is this? We look for that orange mask. We look for the weapons that he's carrying. So he's kind of lost his identity in losing his brothers. Mm, that's an excellent point. Yeah, because you don't really see the party dude at all mm -mm. in this first issue. It kind of creeps out in later issues, but even then, very, very minusculely. For most of this comic, the first time I read it, I was really dissecting those talk bubbles, trying to discern which turtle do we have here? Like, so like right off the bat on this first page, um, we one of the talk bubbles off panel is, forget the temperature, the toxicity level, gotta be off the charts. I'm like, that sounds sciencey. That must be Donatello. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is challenging 
to discern which ghost turtle is talking. Mm -hmm. And I would say that for the most part, it you can't tell who it is. There's In fact, it almost feels like the ghost turtles are operating as one voice, which makes me feel like they're not the actual spirits of the turtles, but part of Michelangelo's trauma. I don't know. I feel like sometimes I see shades of one brother or another brother. Yeah, like, but I think it's shades, mm -hmm. right? Uh, like Honestly, for the most part, it, it just doesn't feel like the turtles I know. To me, it feels like the turtles, but just kind of like flattened out. They have zero dimension. They have zero, like no new insights. I just feel like if they were truly spirits or ghosts and they had experienced death and have gained this new perspective, they would use that to motivate Mikey and kind of guide him from a place of wisdom, like newly gained wisdom. The motivation that they provide for Mikey in this book is mostly like you're doing this wrong. Right, right. Which I think is a reflection of... Of Mikey's doubt. Mikey's lack, lack of confidence and how he functioned in the group kind of being the last in command. We don't physically see the specters of these brothers until page 10 of the book after Michelangelo has infiltrated New York City, uh, now commanded by the new Shredder, the grandson of the original Shredder. And we see Mikey approaching these bikers at Hilti's pub, and over the corner of his shoulder we see these black specters, and that's how they are illustrated throughout the series. They have no color. They're just these black, blobby shapes. And the first time we see them... They're looming over Michelangelo's left shoulder, like in like when you see in pop culture, like an angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other shoulder. And throughout the comic, we only see the other turtles when Michelangelo is utterly alone. Like so they manifest in those quiet times. And people do catch him talking to himself. I love that idea of them being the angels and devils on his shoulders. They're operating basically like his conscience. But there's like an overbearingness to them. Like the arc of this comic is going towards Michelangelo saying like I kind of don't need you. I need to be making my own decisions at this point. But he is haunted by his past. He is haunted by the loss of those brothers. And it is oppressive. Again, this comic is a bummer in a good way, but it is a bummer. I think it's interesting that we see these manifestations of his brothers, but there is no like splinter ghost. I actually think the lack of a splinter ghost confirms that these are not actual ghosts. Like mm -hmm. if we saw a splinter ghost there, we would be more willing to believe that this is a supernatural presence. This is a, a heavenly presence or whatever, an afterlife situation, because we've seen splinter ascend to that realm before. But the fact that these brothers are all black, they're all about doubt. It just doesn't feel 
it feels like a projection. I never feel like it's not a projection. It, yeah, it's uh, it's a representation of the conflict that Michelangelo still has with his brothers, even after they're gone. And he's much more at peace with his relationship with Splinter. And we see that in the narration. And I also think that you would hear more encouragement from them yeah, it if wouldn't it be was constant, the brothers, right? It, it wouldn't be constant nagging. Yes. For this entire first issue... Michelangelo has come to New York like with a purpose. He wants to get, he is making a beeline right for Oroku Hiroto. He's going to kill the new Shredder and then he's going to be done with his family mission. But the entire time he's fighting robot ninjas, his brothers are like, mm, this all seems very risky. I don't know about this choice or that choice. That leap from the ground up into that building on that motorcycle, that's like a one in a million shot. Meanwhile, there's this one point where Mikey's narration refers directly back to the training of Splinter from that very first issue ever of the Ninja Turtles. The Mirage Studios issue. That's right. He says, remember the first real lesson our father ever told us, strike hard, fade away, never lose focus. And it's that never lose focus that I think is kind of the thorn in Mikey's side. The dangerous thought that has burrowed in. Exactly. Another lesson from Splinter he refers back to is to be a true warrior, one must know when to crouch, when to leap, when to stand firm, and most importantly, when to fly, which is like the warriors, you got to know when to hold them, know when to <laughs> fold them. But he, he has this very fixed idea of what a warrior is and what a warrior does. And I feel like he has this ideal kind of closing in on him throughout this comic, locking him in place. And he's not the only one imprisoned to that dangerous thought. I would have to apply that also to the new Shredder. Mm -hmm. He's also trapped to the history that he has been tied to. As Mikey is nearing the Shredder's compound, he just lays out very bluntly what this last mission is about. And he, he says, From the day we were born, our father trained my brothers and me to fight in the war between our families for respect, for honor, for revenge. And now, after decades of murder and death, I've had enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he thinks that the only way that he can finish this is to complete that revenge from that very first issue. But the moment he says, I've had enough, I feel like you're stating the purpose of this comic. The purpose of this comic is to turn away from the cycle of vengeance that began before Splinter ever mutated. And the comic does it. And I kind of feel like that's the fatal flaw of The Last Ronin for me personally. Yeah, no, same. Every time he's like, I've had enough of this. I just want to finish this. He never realizes... Or he never, he never embraces the idea of, Mikey, you can just stop. He can, he can never break away from the pattern that his family created. Over the course of the entire history of the Ninja Turtles, the Foot Clan has built this empire based on terrorism, and the new Shredder is now essentially the military dictator of all of New York. And there are a lot of really 
good motivations to dethrone this guy. But for Mikey, all of those motivations are a very distant second to that vengeance of Hamato Yoshi and Oroku Saki. And we see throughout this arc him prioritizing his mission to the very righteous mission of Casey Marie Jones, of April, and of the Resistance. I'm a little disappointed that this series sort of retcons the growth that Oroku Saki went through in the IDW continuity because he was a character that didn't stay on the path that Mikey is currently trapped on in the last Ronin. He cut his own way. He found new ideas to explore as Oroku Saki beyond being the Shredder. And then the last Ronin just sort of hits the rewind button genetically through his grandson. And his grandson is much more the two-dimensional villain mm -hmm. that we saw when Shredder first rose to power in the original Mirage Studios book. But I also think that's a case of Kevin Eastman and company being so beholden to the idea of badassery as they experienced it in The Dark Knight Returns. They want this to be a kick-ass action post-apocalyptic comic, and they don't allow for growth in Michelangelo beyond the vengeance quest. So like when he says, I've had enough, they don't let him embrace that I've had enoughness. And I think it ends up poorly reflecting on Splinter as a father. Because what ends up happening is in his mission to get the Shredder, he ends up gravely injured and he thinks he's not going to be able to survive. And he ends up in this place where he feels he has to honor his family by committing seppuku. Yeah, the seppuku sequence at the end of the first issue is troubling. Western creators are obviously obsessed with this idea of ritualistic suicide. Um, we all love Akira Kurosawa movies. We all love Lone Wolf and Cub and various manga. And that is an idea that for whatever reason has latched on to the consciousness of Western creators and they always want to put it in their books. And I honestly feel like most of the time it just doesn't quite work for me. And where this story ultimately goes in the last chapter, and, you know, we're, we're spoiling this whole book, but it ends with Michelangelo dead as a result of his conflict with Shredder. And it almost feels like he commits seppuku anyway. It's a culmination of a suicide mission. Yeah, yeah. And... I know Kevin Eastman has spoken about his disappointment with The Dark Knight Returns, and he always felt like Bruce Wayne should have passed the baton mm. in that series, and he kind of wanted to rectify that with The Last Ronin. So you have a passing of the baton moment as a result of the death of Michelangelo in combat. But because we have this scene at the end of issue one where he reached a point where he was ready to go out because he felt like he had dishonored his family. To find honor for his family, he then does achieve the destruction of Shredder and his Foot Clan, and then he can he's allowed to die. I don't know, like, it do just you see what I'm saying? It's ugly, it's ugly. It ends up looking like a cycle of abuse. Yeah, and, and the seppuku sequence makes 
it, the seppuku sequence robs the finale of its righteousness mm. this is like i don't like i don't like any of this I it's like, all it's I feel, all very muddy it's yeah. very emotional and i feel complicated, complicated about it yeah. too yeah though in the seppuku sequence his brothers his ghost brothers are like you don't need to do this so i think that there is that existing um conflict between you don't have to do exactly as the teachings tell you, you can create your own path. You can still, um, you still have more work to do. And Mikey tells his brothers, his ghost brothers, like, no, I need to do this to honor you and to honor our father. And he ends up actually just blacking out and passing out. And so he's not able to um, complete the seppuku, and he ends up being rescued by Casey Marie Jones, and he wakes to see April, which should mean that he is waking to a lot to live for. Yes, and so I get to the end of the first issue, and even with the seppuku business, the first time reading it, I, I saw like, okay, now he is rescued from his grief, his deep depression through April. And that's what I really wanted to see in the remaining issues. But the remaining issues of The Last Ronin are so obsessed with what we already know. Mm. We have so many flashbacks to how each turtle died, how Casey Jones died, how we recovered Fugitoid, the war with Baxter. Like, Honestly, none of that stuff is actually interesting to me. I feel like so much time is wasted in The Last Ronin detailing stuff that we already got beyond in the first issue. So this brings me to what was Splinter's fatal flaw in raising the Ninja Turtles. And it is that he drove home the idea that the only way you can be a success, the only way you can make me proud is to kill one guy who is very well protected. Like, he just creates <laughs> such a, a narrow path for success that Michelangelo ends up feeling that if he doesn't complete that mission, not only is he a failure, in turn, his brothers are a failure, in turn, Splinter is a failure. Like, that's just too much. That's too much to live with. I hate it. I hate it. But can we talk about uh, this new Shredder? I'm going to jump a couple issues. There is a moment where he is at the top of a skyscraper and he is just proclaiming his brilliance to the world, his, his villainy, his great villainy, his great power, and how no one can stop him. And it is, like, it's, it's one two, three, four pages of him just ranting to himself about how great he is. And he's doing it standing atop the crown of Lady Liberty. Yeah, yeah. And then while he's like so proud of himself, he accidentally trips and plummets towards his death or what his death would be, except one of his little robot guards swoops down and picks him up and he's like, ha 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 ha, I'm invincible. And it is the corniest thing. They're do like... And I can't tell if the comic knows how ridiculous it is. Like, is it an unintentionally laughable moment where he trips and nearly kills himself? Or 
Are we clowning him? I, I think that this comic is doing everything in its power to create zero sympathy for him as the villain. That is true. Not only is he a narcissist and a sociopath, but he's keeping his mother yeah. alive in a coma out of spite. He's a maniac, he's, all right? He has crazy. to be taken down. So, you know, it, it you need to see Michelangelo complete the mission based on the setup of the mission. You know, you can't keep this shredder in power. But I wish there was a way of eating your cake and having it too, like being able to take down the shredder, but Michelangelo also not just being chained to a destiny of vengeance. Mm -hmm. You know, when he says, I've had enough, I wish we could explore that I've had enough. Or at least explore the idea that Mikey and this version of the Shredder actually have a lot in common. Yeah. They were that born into a situation where they had to leave, lead a life of violence and hate. Well, I think that's there in this comic. It just never goes the next step because again, it's so chained to the past with these flashbacks. And these flashbacks are cool. When we get to see in the second issue, the death of Raphael, that fight sequence is illustrated so well it's by gorgeous. Ben Bishop and colored beautifully. It is badass. If they're looking for a badass comic, they make some badass sequences throughout these flashbacks. I just think narratively, they're not necessary. You know, they've just launched The Last Ronin, The Lost Years, which is, again, exploring how we got here and where we're going beyond The Last Ronin with these new turtles, which we haven't even talked about yet. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like if you're... Like, I wish they had saved all that historical excavation for this news series and just focused on the first word of this comic, which was the word now. Mm, yeah. Keep the urgency in the present. In terms of counseling Mikey based on this first issue, I think it is a plight of negative self-talk. He has these brothers in the back of his mind constantly undermining his decisions, pointing out his inadequacies or questioning his decisions. But at the end of this issue, when he is unconscious and completely at peace because he thinks perhaps he is dead, he sees his brothers and they are bathed in golden light and they are so happy to see him and their company is so rich and warm and to me that shows that is who his brothers are to him too. I actually think that those golden sequences are the afterlife. You think so? You know he's on the verge of death and he is tipping into Valhalla, you mm -hmm. know? And then at the end of this book, when he does die, and the last pages we get are a return to that golden coloring, mm -hmm. and the conversations are that warm, loving, familial conversations, that feels like the afterlife. That feels like Valhalla for the last Ronin. I guess the reason why I was thinking it was like a moment of pre-death euphoria is the fact that he returns to this time in the past where they're back in their lair, everything is kind of 
idealized uh, an idealized non-existent sure. past but I, I guess it's a moot point do you like do you think that when he comes to and he sees April there do you think that he can remember seeing his brothers he does not reflect on it right so it's kind of hard to say mm-hmm. um I, 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 and, and I, don't, I don't think that necessarily matters either. We remember that moment. Right. And we carry that little bit of bliss into the second issue, which is super tragic, and the third issue, which is super tragic, all the way to the end, when we get that relief in the final pages, and we return to those moments with the similar golden light. I think just in terms of self-talk, I would have Michelangelo kind of meditate on the times that he was with his brothers and he felt seen and he felt whole and he felt like he had something of value to contribute because his brothers loved him. And I, and I feel like with the burden of this responsibility of this mission, he, he just, um, he's distracted from that. And he's just remembering his brother's, most toxic aspect. And the flashbacks that we do get are the worst moments of his life. And I actually think it would be kind of interesting to replace those flashbacks with more sequences like the golden lit bits where he could reflect on what they had and what they were fighting for. You know, what he is fighting for in The Last Ronin is honor and the mission of Splinter to take down the Foot Clan, and the Shredder family line. And he's not really fighting for the good out there, Mm -hmm. right? And that's what I'm missing in The Last Ronin. Yeah, he's like just looking to close a loop. Yes. The second issue opens with a flashback of April O'Neil and Casey Jones Sr. getting really nervous and excited about telling the Ninja Turtles that they are now engaged and they're going to get married and they're going to start having this family life. And I think that the reason that they're nervous to tell the turtles is because they have found another reason to be and another reason to live. But of course, the beautiful meal that April has made is ruined because the Ninja Turtles got ambushed by the Foot Clan and Splinter is looking like he's gonna die. April's dining room table becomes a deathbed. And there, Splinter is going, this war, it's just a matter of time. Oroku, Hamato, always, you know, we have to end this once and for all. And Mikey is the one holding Splinter's hand and listening to this. And um, then there's all of this kerfuffle. And while Leonardo is trying to form a plan, of course, Raphael gets like, well, I'm just going to do it my own way. And he dashes off to get Karai, who is the current leader of the Foot Clan. And because he ran off without a plan, he's killed. Yeah, he basically dies as a result of his worst attribute, which is also his most best known attribute. And I hate that. And it establishes this theme of each of Michelangelo's loved ones being killed because of something that they could not get over. So Splinter dies in Japan during the truce talks that happened to be a trap because he sees this as his last opportunity for his vengeance. And despite Donatello going well, like, this I mean, is a terrible it's idea. It's a trap. So he's, he is trapped into that fight. 
But the entire time Donatello is saying, we need to retreat. Right, right. And Splinter doesn't listen to him. Splinter gets killed. Donatello, deferring to the orders of his master, also get killed. So because he's so deferential, he dies. I think I'm about to undermine what I just said, but because Splinter has split up the Ninja Turtles going after this truce, Leonardo and Casey die in battle against Baxter Stockman being vastly outnumbered and outmanned. And actually, Leonardo ends up having the closest to a righteous death because the entire time he's going after the Sea of Mausers, Casey and Leo continue talking about the possibility that they'll make it out alive. They still have hope for the future. I do love their last conversation arguing over the toppings of a pizza. Mm -hmm. That feels so real. And, you know, The Last Ronin is not a comic without hope, even in the now of the post-apocalyptic present. Michelangelo is training Casey Marie Jones. He has stepped into a splinter-like role with her. And there is a lot of future possibility between them in those sequences. I think it's also interesting that the brothers, the specters, rise up at that moment and question whether they should be teaching Casey Marie Jones. Like, she's just a teenager. You say that Michelangelo is stepping into the splinter role, but when I watched that initial sparring session between Mikey and Casey, I see a lot of his sparring sessions with, with Raphael paralleling the flaws in her fighting skill with a flaw in her character. Specifically going back to the Mirage Studios comics, which we talked about in our Mirage episode, where Mikey and Raph were sparring partners. Yeah, they were yeah. sparring partners. Mikey started going after Raph's hot-headedness and ends up elevating the situation to something that is violent, to the point where Raphael pulls a knife on Michelangelo, and that is that is how Raphael goes out and meets Casey Jones and, and learns that giving in to your temper is not the way of the warrior. Yeah, initially, Casey Jones's entire creation was to be a dark reflection of Raphael's behavior. Exactly. So here is Michelangelo in the now pushing this version of Casey saying like, you're naive, you're just a child. The only way that you have what it takes to be a warrior is for you to flip and get over yourself, which is kind of what Splinter says. But I think that Splinter is way kinder about it than Michelangelo. But Casey Marie Jones pushes Michelangelo into training her because she shows that she does have some serious skills and she has been training on her own. Well, I just think that um, Casey Marie has more of a willingness to listen to Michelangelo because they are not peers. Where I feel like with Raphael, in that relationship, Raphael did not see him and himself as him as peers to Michelangelo. He saw himself as a bigger, more sure. skilled brother. But going back to the brothers telling Michelangelo not to train Casey, they go like, she's only 15, she's only 16 years old. And 
Michelangelo goes like, well, we were 16. And they're like, well, that's totally different because we were literally trained our whole, whole lives. And we're also mutants. We're also stronger. She is the child of April and Casey. Subtext being her life is more valuable than ours in a way. And she's weaker. Uh, yeah, spoiler she, alert, though, she's not because <laughs> they were they've been hanging around these mutants for so long. Some of that mutant has infected the bloodstream of Casey Jones Sr. and April O'Neil, which then flowed into Casey Marie Jones, making her super strong for yeah, some reason. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But this is another scene where I feel like Michelangelo comes so close to the truth of the whole situation. One of the turtles goes like, well, she's Casey and April's kid. And Michelangelo goes, and we're Splinter's kids. And Karai was Shredder's kid. And Hiroto is her kid. And we're all back to square one. We've made zero progress. Nothing has changed. This is the I've had enough sequence. Like, again, we're building up to breaking the cycle. Which he does not do. He, he... He uses this all as evidence of why he should continue the cycle because the, in his mind, there's only one way that the cycle is completed, revenge. And jumping to issue five, the very beginning, those ghost brothers have changed their tune and they are pressuring Mikey to finish the attack. Let's get this done. And Mikey is now resisting completing that mission of revenge, right? But they are negging him. They are yeah. saying, no, you were never built for this. You're Michelangelo. This is just not going to work for you. you. You can't get this done. The vibe is, brothers, you are rushing me. Allow yeah. me to sit and meditate and think about what I have to do. And Michelangelo goes as far as to say, I wish you were alive so I could kill you again. Yeah, he goes, well, yeah. Leading up to that, he, he does tell them, he does express his emotions as Dr. H would encourage him to do. He's saying big like- feelings, Lisa, big feelings. He's having feelings. a big feeling and his big feeling is being the sole survivor is too much for me. It is too, he literally says it's too painful to bear and Raphael, Ghost Raphael says, I knew you were not strong enough to handle this. I knew that you could not do this. I knew that you were the weak one. And now because you're the one that's left, you're the one who's going to ruin it for everybody. So to hell with you bros, I am gonna tool up. I'm gonna complete Splinter's journal. I'm gonna put in one final entry, close the book on that, leave that to Casey Marie Jones, and off I go to die into battle. It breaks my heart for Michelangelo to go into battle still carrying so much resentment towards Raphael. The last words he says to his brothers, his ghost brothers that he has been carrying around on his shoulders is shut up. Yeah, I Leave hate me it. be. I don't Leave like it. Leave me alone. I really don't like it. There is one scene in issue two where Michelangelo is sitting with the ghosts of his brothers and having tea. Mm. And he starts opening up what it was like to wake up from the explosion and how he had lost time and how he was so disoriented and confused. And Raphael was like, yeah, I, I wasn't there for that one. I, I missed that one. And the reason is because he, he had already died. Then Michelangelo opens up about all of this resentment 
that he had towards Raphael. And he, he goes like, you weren't there because you had done something hot-headed, like you always did. And Raphael goes like, yeah, but how many times has that hot-headedness saved you? And uh, Michelangelo was like, well, not enough. Not enough. Your hot-headedness killed you. You not being there killed Donatello and Splinter and... And Leonardo and put us here. It's a brutal scene. It's awful. And he... And it ends with Michelangelo with all of these action lines throwing a hot kettle towards the ghost and says, I fought every battle you have, even the ones you started, and you want to judge me? Right? So even of all of his relationships that have passed on, the Raphael one is the one that to me hurts the most where to me, it's just so utterly unresolved. And it just gets me back to Dr. Hubner and the idea of taking the bait. The dynamic between Michelangelo and Raphael is that they would poke each other and prod each other into conflict and discontent. And even from the afterlife, Raphael can can create these big feelings in Michelangelo. And I I feel like so much peace would come from realizing that Raphael did that out of a place of love, out of a place of comparing and despairing and and just wanting to be recognized as better by your own brother. It, It was, they did it like, Sibling relationships are so complicated. And, and like in, that, in our first issue with Dr. Hubner, it, I talked about how she started the introduction by saying that a lot of sibling rivalry has to do over the, the winning, wanting to win the love of the parent, which would, which would be splinter in this, in this dynamic. But I think that a lot of sibling rivalry also comes from the competition of the worthiness of love of each other, you know? And as an only child, I can't really speak to this. I can only speak to this as I observe in your relationship with your siblings. But my feeling is that so often we are continuing to compete with the idea of our siblings as they were. Mm. What you're seeing in The Last Ronin is Michelangelo having conversations with who his siblings were, not necessarily who his siblings, because they're dead, it's hard to say, but like... Who the, who, who the siblings were in their completeness. Like Yes, yes. So, you know, your siblings, as they exist right now, mm-hmm. out in the world in the various different states, are not the people they were when you were children. Right. But when you interact with them sometimes, you behave, you all fall into these roles that are very childlike. You regress into those old relationships as they were when you were all under one house. Before we get together, I always have 
the the like mental cycle of oh I hope they don't do that one thing because <laughs> if I they do that one thing I'm just going to like lose my mind and so for Michelangelo Raphael is always the hot headed one mm -hmm. because that's what he experienced the most in memorable ways but that might not be the totality of Raphael either right and I think that Raphael if he realized that that's how his brother remembered him would be heartbroken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And especially the way that Raphael goes out of this because his hot-headedness literally leads to his death. Right. And the same goes for Michelangelo. He must complete the family mission and kill the Shredder. And he also has to protect all these people. Like, like the Shredder does have to go. They have to dethrone him. And in the act of dethroning him, Michelangelo dies in the mud. And it's just such a heartbreaking ending to the story of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. But also they leave these new turtles and their new sensei in Casey Marie Jones. So I guess their story continues. But does their story continue? Or just like the cycle of violence between the Foot Clan and Yoshi's family continue? Is Oroku Hiroto literally the last shredder? He, he has no kids or anything like that. Not to my knowledge. But there are all of these generals, I'm sure, just really clamoring. Well, a power vacuum will happen. Like, to me, it's less interesting whether or not the Foot Clan will continue, although I'm sure they will, they will. through those generals. But the fact that Casey Marie Jones now will take these teachings and just march down the same path that Michelangelo couldn't break free from. Mm. And ultimately... What I find with The Last Ronin is it's just filled with all this negative energy and it doesn't feel true to the community that the Ninja Turtles built with Splinter in the early IDW stories, in the early Mirage stories, and certainly in the early Archie comics stories. Why I liked Cyber Samurai Ninja Turtles so much was that Leonardo ascended to the position of sensei and he had the Splinter clan and he was teaching the, the, the lessons that Splinter taught him. Like, the end story for the Ninja Turtles, for me, isn't for the brothers to die in the mud, it's to continue the teaching and the growth of Master Splinter and, the, and, and create and spread the community. The turtles in Cyber Samurai Ninja Turtles recognize the limitations of the upbringing they had from Splinter. They've healed that wound and they are now carrying the evolved idea of what Splinter was going after onto the next generation. Where I feel like in the last Ronin, it shows that the Ninja Turtles literally had zero growth from the time that they were 16 to the time that they were 45. And to me, that's just not particularly heroic. It's depressing. I don't want to dismiss the cool of The Last mm -hmm. Ronin. This comic is really cool, quote unquote. But the way I look at it is the way that I look at Days of Future Past with the X-Men, right? That is a dark future that is a possibility that I don't want to happen. Mm -hmm. Let's do whatever we can to not reach the last Ronin's future. The culmination of the last Ronin is simply just the culmination of a lot of dudes dying of big feelings. <laughs> hey, that was my girlfriend. 
murder. Hey, you murdered my master, murder. Hey, you murdered my dad, murder. Imagine if they had just taken a few slow breaths, done some positive self-talk, and frickin' moved on. Yeah, I do wonder about the way we interpret the Ghost Brothers sequences as not ghosts, but extensions of Mikey's grief and, and trauma. If we were to actually look at those as actual ghost sequences, does that remove kind of the sadness of those scenes? Because right now we look at them and we're like, hey, Mikey needs some therapy. Mm -hmm. But if they are actual ghosts, like... To me, that would be even more sad. Yeah? Because the way that this, the way Mikey goes into this final battle is telling these ghosts that in this interpretation are his actual brothers, shut up and leave me alone. He still ends up dying in the mud. He still remains imprisoned to this fictitious vengeance quest. And he dies still feeling contentious with his brothers, but now because his brothers were ghosts, his worst fears of his brothers hating him, true, they were true. Yeah, yeah, interesting, yeah, yeah. I'm sure folks listening have a very different interpretation than we do of The Last Ronin, and, and we, I'm open we, to hearing yeah, about it, absolutely. for sure. Uh, cbccpodcast at gmail.com or at cbccpodcast on Twitter. Would love to hear from you. But I come away from The Last Ronin just devastated. Yeah, I come away from and, Last and Ronin. And mad. Uh, yeah, I... And it's a direct extension of how much we love these characters. Yeah, yeah totally. And we want better for them. And, like, and, it, and it, know, not every story needs a happy ending, but gosh darn it, we want one. And we can't dismiss the Foot Clan's role, mm -hmm. right? I mean, these are bad folks who went on a kill-crazy rampage of their own. And, you know, the Turtles do have to do something about that terrorism. So that would be my ending for The Last Ronin, is for Michelangelo to let go of the revenge and vengeance aspect of his mission and really embrace the mission of the resistance. Yeah, And yeah. join with Casey Marie and her gang and that army that they're building to use his expertise to do some actual good in the world. And in that, we could find and rekindle the turtle community. That's right. And then if he dies doing that, fine. Oof, yeah. Feeling vulnerable. Send those letters. Oh, good. <laughs> I've had so much fun talking Ninja Turtles with you, Lisa. These last four couple sessions episodes have been some of my favorite episodes. And I thought, you know, exploring the sibling dynamic thing was a little unique and new. And I'd like to continue doing that with other sibling sets. But I really also want to return to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles at some point, cover the image comics, go back to the Mirage era, go back to the earlier IDW stories. There's just still so much potential there. So, um... Our session is up. We are releasing <laughs> Michelangelo back into the world, back into canon. Uh, back into Valhalla yeah, <laughs> or um, wherever. But now is the time where we reflect on any lessons that we've learned with our journey with the Ninja Turtles and Dr. Hubner and the Sibling Survival Guide. 
this might just be recency bias, but I liked the exercise of labeling your feelings big, small, or not at all. Mm -hmm. And there are so many sequences within The Last Ronin where you're like, ooh, big feeling, big feeling, big feeling. Uh, and I, I think that it would do me good to revisit some of those feelings on a regular basis. And just the idea that having a big feeling will impede your rationality. Like, just because the reason that your feeling is big is right doesn't mean that the action that you take as an extension of that feeling is going to be good or rational. Big feelings can be blocks. Mm, yeah. Right? And you, you, you need to chip away at those boulders and get them down to something manageable to really recognize your surroundings. Yeah, yeah. And, and thank your body for having the feeling. Like, thank you for the alarm. And I think we've also discovered over the course of doing this podcast that you need to have these tools, these exercises ready at your disposal so you can use them when you need them. Michelangelo couldn't use this exercise because he wasn't already familiar with the exercise. Mm. But if he had been familiar with the exercise of naming his feelings big, small, or not at all, I, I think he could have found peace a lot quicker in a lot of these uh, hot-tempered moments. I also liked the exercise of her listing the um, options of reactions to your sibling. Um, is blaming them the right thing to do? You're like, no, of course not. Is calmly talking to them the right thing to do? Of course it is. Like, to acknowledge, like, yes, you know the right thing to do when dealing with your siblings. And like it's it's not a matter of something being wrong with you or you having like some kind of ignorance of, I don't know how to act. I'm just some kind of like unwieldy monster. Like, yeah, you know the thing to do. You're just having a big emotion. And when you have the big emotion, knowing to pause and step away, that's the hardest element. Mm -hmm. And then when you do that again, Another great tool, put on those friendship glasses. Yes. Like, is that how you want to observe the person across from you that you're so mad? Or do you like having your enemy glasses on? You yeah. Know? You, no, you don't. You don't. Like, what ultimately do you want out of this relationship? You're going to have some fights along the way, but you need to step aside and remember why you're in this together in the first place. Yeah, sometimes like starting a fight with your sibling or having a con having a conflict with your sibling feels great. Righteousness is like a <laughs> high, it's a buzz. Like, man, listen, Brad, this is a situation where I was right and my sibling was wrong. And that's and what you see in the last Rona, that righteousness buzz all the way through. But that's just like a trap. That's just like a like a temporary happiness in exchange for greater peace, right? That last page of Splinter's journal, Michelangelo wrote no peace, like K-N-O-W peace. But I really feel that he never felt that. Like to me, he exchanged, he exchanged the feeling of righteousness for the feeling of peace. And uh, like, I would argue that it was not uh, an even trade. Yeah, we didn't even talk about that. That no piece, it starts off as no, N-O, and then Michelangelo at the end adds the K. Who wrote the no piece initially? Like, was that Splinter? I think it was Splinter because he had his journal with him on the battlefield 
when um, the truce talks did not work out as planned. So I think as his last act, he wrote, no peace, like this truce didn't turn out. And so the last word Splinter gave to his sons was the words, no peace. Which I think is important, because Ugh, if they think yeah. that there was a truce, he's yeah. like, there was definitely not a truce. I mean, Keep narratively, fighting. that's true. <laughs> like, like that, that's needed, but also just like poetically... Ugh, I, don't, I just don't like it. So I'm glad that Michelangelo puts the K on there. But does he know peace? Or is he now saying, like, the last words he got was no peace? I think that he thinks that by carrying out the vengeance, finally, now the next generation can know peace. Yeah, but yeah, I, yeah. Like, that's I, his hope, right? But I don't think that's the case. Not if they're growing turtles to continue fighting. Right, right. I have one more lesson to talk about before we close out this session with the Ninja Turtles for now is not from Dr. Hubner, but from the last Ronin itself and how it got me thinking about like these things in our lives, these repetitive cycles that we run into again and again. So for Michelangelo, it's you've got to kill the shredder. You've got to kill the shredder. And it's led to this feeling of inadequacy and... Um, lack of fulfillment and general discontent. And so like when you feel like there's like this absolute in your life that is ruining your joy and ruining your happiness, maybe take a moment to flip that on its head and go, what if Michelangelo goes like, what really happens if I don't kill the shredder? What if that's not true? How does that make me feel? If I don't have this shredder thing hanging over my head, do I feel joy? Do I feel hope and 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 p potential for fulfillment? Like, I, what I does the revenge get me? Exactly. Like, but again, there's the practicalities of this is a dictator. Right. right. We have to look at the story as the story. I still, but I still think that you can face the dictator without it being an act of vengeance. Like Removing to me, the hate from it. I don't, it's not like I want Michelangelo to lay down his arms and never fight again. What I want for Michelangelo- Is to know peace. Yeah, yeah, is to know peace. And, and to love himself and find the part of him that sees his brothers and his father in that glowing golden light. I come away from this book uh, just feeling very conflicted about it. You know, mm. I had a great time reading it. I'm just squidgy on a lot of the details. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I love that first issue and yeah. the potentiality of the first issue. Yeah, yeah. And we know, like, that's one of the tenets of comic book couples counseling. Expectations are the enemy of a good time. And we shouldn't be rejecting the premise just because the story didn't go the way that we wanted. <laughs> that doesn't mean that the story is bad. Feels like we did a lot of rejecting of the premise in this one, Lisa. And, and that's why um, we're bracing ourselves because we are leaving ourselves open to criticism. System, and that's life. So leaving it there, the Ninja Turtles for now, let's look ahead to next week. What's coming on Comic Book Couples Counseling? We've got maybe the most epic Creator Corner conversation that we've had so far. It's February. It's Valentine's Day month. We wanted to return to our favorite comic book couple, Norrin Rad and Don Greenwood, the couple that basically created comic book couples counseling. And to revisit them, we 
sought out one of the co-creators, Dan Slott, and thankfully he agreed to come on the show and have a really long and in-depth conversation about his Silver Surfer run that he did with Mike Allred and Laura Allred. And we've had that chat. It's like an hour and a half without our intro or outro. We get into every aspect of that comic book. It was truly special. And I know, Lisa. Yeah that you tell me never to tell the listeners this. But I really feel like to fully appreciate this upcoming episode, you need to read Silver Surfer, the all-ridden slot run. I agree. The what? thing that you do that I disagree with is they've, they're already playing the episode. We're about to get into an interview, and you tell the, the listener to turn off the podcast to read the book that we're promoting and um, never turn off this podcast. But we are going to talk about every aspect of the Silver it's, Surfer run, including the ending. Plus, we want that for you. We yeah. want the joy and the beauty and the love and, and all of the great feelings and happy tears and sad tears of Silver Surfer, the Dan Slott, and Mike Allred run. We want that for you. So we the, want you to experience that story. The comic is available on Marvel Unlimited. You can read it there. You can read it digitally. You can buy the comics singles. Uh, the Omnibus is about to be reprinted, which is why we are chatting with Dan Slott about it. Just get hyped. Get hyped for this conversation. Another thing that I do want to correct, Brad, as, oh uh, as I speak from the, the corner of the Love Nest that is the corrections department. Yes. We didn't just go after Dan Slott. Well, we went after Mike Allred we and Laura Allred also, but we couldn't make that work. They were not available at this time, but the shingle is a hanging. Yeah, yeah. That'll happen eventually. We'll, we'll get them both on the podcast at some point yes. to continue the conversation of Don Greenwood and Norrin Rad because we are never done talking about them. And in fact, we are going to guest star on the Comics Collective podcast on their Valentine's Day episode about that Silver Surfer run. So we're going to continue to talk about Don and Norrin all month long. Also, if you haven't already listened to it, I did a recent crossover girls-only episode of Comics Collective talking Alexis's all-time favorite book series, Twilight. And I got really vulnerable over there. It was very squealy and very fun. It felt like a sleepover. Like like we all painted each other's toenails and talked boys and it was the best. I love that conversation. You can find it in the show notes of this episode. Seek it out. It's really delightful. Comics Collective also just had Tom King on their show. Yes. Uh, having a really great conversation there as well. Uh, so seek them out if you're not already subscribed to their channel. And then after our Dan Slot episode, we are going to have our next couples session series and we will be covering over the course of four episodes mark and eve from invincible the image comic skybound series it's celebrating its 20th anniversary this year the second season of the animated series will be on amazon later this year and to help us program those four episodes we actually had a conversation with robert kirkman we asked robert kirkman Please help us plan the story arcs that we will cover in our Invincible session. And he did. And that's a really delightful chat. So Dan Slott, Robert Kirkman coming on Comic Book Couples Counseling. What a wild month February is going to be. February is a short king. It's the shortest month, but it's the most powerful month. Brad, 
Where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? You can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at A Cool Hand Fluke. And if you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art and show posters, send them to Karen Charm at Karen underscore X-Men fan. Lisa, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? I'm always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, Google, and Apple Podcasts. All those places. I said them out of order and it felt weird. (laughs) If you'd like to get exclusive, (laughs) you can join our Patreon where you'll get more content including... Weekly bonus episodes. What a shimmy Lisa just did. I did. I did. I I really rocked the boat over here. If you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at cbccpodcast. We're doing something new on the website. We're offering a few transcript previews Mm -hmm. of future episodes. So beyond Dan Slott and Robert Kirkman coming on the show, we also have Jamal Campbell and Joshua Williamson, the new creative team on Superman, as well as Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing talking about One Bad Day Clayface. And we've put previews of those episodes up on the website. So go to comicbookcouplescounseling.com. Please click them links. You can give us the gift of five stars in Apple Podcasts we mentioned earlier. We are hurting for them. (laughs) And if you'd like to do an act of service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? That would be nice. Yeah, we are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod. So until next time, friends, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. We went a little off the book there at the end. Was that okay? I don't know.